My name is Carmen Lopez. And I'm Brenda Ben Peters. And today is November 1st, 2016, and I'm here with Five Mualim Up for Our Streets, Our Stories oral history project focused on the criminal justice system. And uh, my first question would be um, what has been your experience with the justice system? Oh, horrible. Um, <laughs> I uh, was incarcerated for a length of time, uh, about 12 years. During that time, uh, they didn't let me out basically till they locked the officers up who locked me up. So the officers involved in my case were all indicted on charges from the union to the sergeant to the sh uh, shop steward. And it created a system uh, where they looked at who was being charged and why. And a lot of people were let go at that time in the upstate regions. This was in the Albany Stanford area. Um, my experience with the justice system has always been injustice, you know. I came into the system uh, living with a mental illness, um, not really recognizing it, but getting therapy when I can, right? Uh, which is how the average American citizen works. Uh, my conditions were exasperated being in confinement without the support of medication, right? Because uh, Breikers in the New York State prison system that I went through in the jails doesn't do assessment. So you don't have a system of recognizing people with mental illness. Even though we all know in the 80s that the criminal justice system, uh, when Reagan cut community-based funding for cops, he also cut community-based funding for mental health facilities. So by, the, by 1985, there's people on the street. So this is sort of the long-term collateral consequences of having people directly impacted, um, not being facilitated treatment. So with the lack of that, the majority of people inside of prison suffer from a mental condition or live with a mental illness, mood disorder. Um, so I see not only me, but an entire population of people inside, untreated, uh, sort of unsupported. Yeah. So my system was always injustice with them. <laughs> right. you, know, you, you, you know, my father and my uncles and a lot of my family members are political prisoners as well, so they always had this political view and all these great philosophy arguments and talks about imprisonment and the Constitution and the 13th Amendment and slavery. But you don't really get that feeling until you're actually the slave, right? Until you're coming through the system and they literally strip you of everything you have, like literally strip you, shave you down, uh, now you own, disinfect you, and you are state property. They don't give you a name, they give you a number, and you're sort of put through the system. But until you're in that space, where you walk into a reception room and it's 75 to 100 other black and Latino men, butt naked, standing in line, next, 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 like an auction block, and your number is giving in the millions, right? That is your Department of Corrections number because of the amount of people, literally, uh, or the thousands because of your state. So you're getting a systematic number, and when you get that number, you always think about the numbers under that. So if your number is for the year, um, such and such thousand, such and such such, you know that you're on this sort of auction block, right? I think being in that space and, and then realizing the immense amount of racism, prejudice, and how it satisfied these other class of people, because here I am in the prison system with a full knowledge, growing up with Dr. Fres uh, Francis Cress Wilson doing classes at my house. And, um, uh, literally, um, Dr. Benjamin Clark and other uh, 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 famous speakers uh, creating 
a network of education. So I knew about the system and how mass incarceration mirrored slavery. And seeing it, seeing these other poor white Americans being the keepers of the lower class people of color, right? Um, so they're both poor, but one is just saying, you know, hey, I'm poor, but at least I'm not blind. Um, and it became a huge oppressed, uh, oppressionistic environment where every day was this constant agitation. Right? Being in those moments um, allowed me to see for what it is, the atrocity, and how this was a whole other world. And some people probably took those jobs just because of their racial attitude or how they felt. But they were pawns, too, because they're just literally the same country and the same system of oppression is oppressing them. Um, and they have no system of employment, no other opportunities there. Um, so I've seen two different structures of poor people in America superseding each other in sort of like this micro battle. Um, it changed my view uh, because before then I, I kind of wanted to go to law school. I like to argue. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to think that there was some type of right or wrong. My uncle was a lawyer and he always told me that Law is the definitive yes or no. It's winning it, right? It's also earning uh, the ability to do the research and finding out maybe a new yes or no. Um, but I didn't see that when, it, when, when the scales are tipped automatically, right? Once you're inside, you see it as worthless. So I seen it as a system that was totally designed for a purpose. I didn't think it was something that happened. I didn't think it was a tragedy. There was a growth that happened in America. and We had this great thing that we were doing, but it just got out of control. No from initial design. What is the purpose? The purpose is to create a system where some classes are subservient and actually manufacturing goods to support the other class, right? When it comes to slavery, you sort of... It's about class or ethnicity? Class and then ethnicity comes with it, I believe. You know, because uh, those people previously incarcerated, directly impacted by mass incarceration, are put into a separate caste system. Right? There's about 320, a little over 320 million Americans in this country. A hundred million Americans are previously incarcerated. We already know 80 million just are disenfranchised from employment alone, just from the numbers of census, right? And then we have to always think about the other 20 million who are disenfranchised from housing. Uh, so we know that that adds up to a certain amount. But And that's accounting all the people to fill out the census form. Like we already know everybody doesn't fill out that form, right? So there's a huge population that's not including immigration detention and deportation holdies and all of those things that are happening inside incarceration as well because we hold 37,000 people per year is the quota and literally sell them to private prisons um, that's a quota the president that I made a website it's called end the quota 37,000 um, so when you think about all of that it's a state of incarceration where we topple the rest of the planet and um, what have you learned from being part of the, the justice system, or having this experience? That those who aren't and never been there have no idea. I think that that's my greatest battle still, convincing people, but also they don't understand the system like those who have been inside, right? Um, when I came home, I remember the argument with the Correctional Association an Oversight Committee uh, dedicated to doing... Uh, oversight for the prison system since it was created by the constitution, state constitution, um, arguing them about hot water in this cell. Because they were like, hey, you got the hot water, you got the cold water. I was like, wait a minute, what do you think this is? Like, nobody has hot water in that cell. We actually had to create a, con a contraption, do a whole bunch of grievances and bills, and people got beat up behind it to get hot water. 
Like we live out of a bucket. Like they give you a five gallon paint bucket if you get one. Um, and that's what you wash out of. That's what you eat out of. That's what you do a lot of things out of. If you cook in, um, people are living on a cave-like level, right? In small cages in a systematic slave system where it's tier after tier, 50 to 100 cells on every tier, six to five floors, double-sided buildings. Um, I don't think people realize that and never visualize that. So a lot of people watch Oz <clears throat> or think that law and order is how your case went, that there's these sort of hyper-masculine and great characters defending you and it's this fearless prosecutor that goes through every limit to prove that you're innocent. When it's not true, 95% are plea bargains and people are bargaining the lesser of two evils. And they say, I'm a poor black person who's been assumed of doing this crime. The worst charge is 10 to 15 years and they offer me five right now. Now I know I don't even have the legal, financial or mental or social structure to fight this, prove my innocence, I'll just take the five years, right? Um, and that's what 95% of convictions are in America. So there is no justice. There is no fighting that. And I think that when I came home, the greatest battle was being a voice for people and seeing all these conferences and events that talked about prison but didn't have one person who'd been there. Great professors. I studied prison for 20 years and um, never been there a day. And we used to just literally show up, sit down, and put our plaque on the table um, to say that you can't talk about incarceration without us. And it changed the way things are done. Rules and laws are being um, enacted that are vital um, because of how those closer to the problem um, are often closer to the solution, but even far more often farthest from the resources to make it happen. Um, so one of them was creating councils and task forces and being able to put people directly impacted. So in New York, we've done that. I'm in the Mayor's Behavioral Task Force, uh, like Khalil, who's a part of our network. He's on the Immigration Task Force. Glenn is on the Governor's Reentry Task Force. We have the Mayor's State Reentry Task Force, an individual task force in each borough, which we have members at each one. And we have the Juvenile Task Force about Rikers. So where we have made all these decisions and certain attacks, lawyers have been trying to get kids out of Rikers or think about the issue of kids in Rikers. But that didn't happen until we came home about five years ago when we said, we, why don't you use the Rape Elimination Act because Priya determines that you shouldn't be in the same facility as adults. And they're like, no, they're not. They're in a separate building. Like, no, they're not. They're right down the hall. And nobody who has been there has ever stated that. So I see them every time I'm going to medical. I'm in the same room with them. I'm in the same for medication. I'm in the same hallway traveling with them. And when we go to gym and rec, sometimes we're in the same yard at the same time. So here you have a guy doing 25 to life for facing three murders and a kid doing 90 days and they're in the same unit. That's not supposed to happen, right? Uh, we live in a state where 16-year-olds are prosecuted as adults and that makes it tricky itself. Um, so we have been the backbone of some of that. You know, Recently we had a conference in um, Oakland and three to 400 of us representing, I'm sorry, five, 600 of us representing over 300 organizations all led by people directly impacted, came together. We all have a national movement. Uh, John Legend came, Russell Simmons was there. Um, the reason why is because I said, people didn't see incarceration for it until those who have been there started being a voice for that. And I think that that has made the change. And the biggest battle was convincing people that the myths are myths, you know? Yeah. Just kind of going back to that. Um, so what is your mission or if do you have a plan yeah. of how to educate those misinformed general 
Those misinformed, the common simple plan is that the tools are already in the community. When you speak about history, right? All the history is right in the library. Like literally right in the library. The first thing we do when it comes to reintegration and getting people back inside is setting them up an email account and all those other things, but also getting them a library card because that gets them internet access, right? Um, so our mission is to say what, not reinvent the wheel and create new reports and other things, but the data is data, but the fine means and sometimes it depends on who the moderator is. So like with this series, America Divided, we have the actors being the moderators, right? And they can point to the history that's already there. Um, I think that it's going to take a huge amount of multiple educational projects, films, plays, artwork. Um, all of these things should be in conjunction with how people can actually access it themselves, right? Because you don't really believe nothing until you sort of exasperate yourself and look it up or look into it. And if we make those things easily accessible, if we do events where it can be easily reached that, and saying, the book that I'm talking about is right there, the data is right in this room, um, people can educate themselves, right? And I think that's the thing, is getting this country to heal itself. When Germany uh, wanted to get past the Holocaust issue, uh, they teamed with uh, the library system in Germany, literally, and they created a system where every day it's taught in school, they created a huge curriculum, and you have to go on visits to graduate certain classes, right? So you have to live sort of this life. They also created, uh, with the museum and the preservation department in, in Germany, this huge preservation move, uh, they created um, plaques and monuments throughout the country where Jewish families lived. Um, and where they also, where certain events took place. So it's something you're not just ignoring, you're moving past it, but it's creating a conversation of where it's at. And it's going to have to include facts and data because some people just don't believe it until they see it themselves. So I say definitive education is really what we try to do. And even though we create these unique educational events, they're all based off of data that's already here. Yeah. I'm curious about your experience with solitary confinement. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I spent a, a lot of time in solitary and it does a different effect to each person because we're all different people. Some people are more susceptible to damage. Uh, if you're 10, you're going to react differently if you're 13 or 14 and you're a child, your brain isn't developed until you're 21. Uh, it has different effects on you depending on your age. If you're 65, 75, going through osteoporosis, uh, like I have a friend, Evie Litwak, who had a heat flash in her 50s, 60s, and took off her shirt and literally, not naked, but she had two shirts on, but in prison you can't, you have to have a t-shirt and a sweatshirt, you can't have on one layer. And she went to the box for that. Another person went to the box because they forgot which floor they was on. It's like, oh man. But he's like 72 years old, right? So there is no mercy with solitary, right? The other thing is New York State is different from other states. <clears throat> you are literally getting uh, the minimum to keep you alive as food. And I don't know if people know what the nutritional minimum amount to keep you alive is. Like a level tablespoon of rice, right? A level tablespoon of peas, right? A small enough to fit like a small tablet, that's like your tray, right? Um, <clears throat> you're also getting minimum standards. Minimum standards is different from rules. Minimum standards is just enough to keep you alive. So two pairs of underwears, two pairs of socks, two pairs of boxes. And um, if you have a religious book, you can keep it. And if you have 
10 to 12 photographs, they'll let you keep them. <clears throat> Only 12 or 10 of them. And that's it. No human contact, no nothing. Right? So, the part of your brain that makes all the decisions is actually located inside of the cerebral cortex. Cerebral cortex is the frontal lobe of your brain that sort of makes all the decisions, but also is the part of your body that your brain that tells your body micro messages, like grow one thousandth of a centimeter today, right? And your bones grow and all these other things. So all your decision-making abilities come from this cortex of your brain. Hence this term like, oh, you must have been dropped in your head when you was a kid, right? That's the joke. But it's actually true. It could affect at a young age the decision-making abilities you have for the rest of your life. So a blunt force trauma to the head does immense damage. With all that knowledge, that knowledge being scientifically known, we are still tormenting people by keeping them in isolation 23 hours a day. First, inside, two people go through two different sort of things, right? Sensory deprivation and human isolation. It's two different sort of structures that affect any human being. Uh, but really quick, inside the, somatos, uh, inside the cerebral cortex is a part of your brain called the somatosensory cortex. And this is the neuroreceptors that receive the 316 nerve endings that run down from your brain into your optical cord that gives you visuals in such an instant, right? Like if I'm talking to my son and he's like texting and rolling his eyes, like I can visually see he's not paying me no mind, right? So all of these things are input and data that we sort of absorb to make a decision. All of that is damaged after 14 days, right? The ability of those neuroreceptors to process information. So if everything you see, everything you touch, how you feel, literally people have had heart attacks thinking that they were on fire, hallucinating, right? Um, this sort of circumstances and wild behavior is logically going to happen. It is a scientific fact. Um, and sensory deprivation and human isolation, right? How much do we use our senses every day, right? And how we make a decision. When I was young, my mother would be like, like, get the book, right? I didn't understand what she was saying, but I know she pointed to the book. So through association, we get that. But when you're in solitary, you don't, there's nothing for you to absorb, right? Once you sort of study, just like the college student who could walk in their room and just find out where their books are at, eyes closed, because they know everything. They know every scribble on the wall and everything that's there. For me, it was the loneliness but also the bombardment of sounds and uh, incandescent sort of noise, right? Like the light buzzing. Uh, like Herman Wallace said, it doesn't bother you if you don't focus on it. But if there's nothing else in the isolation vacuum, that's all you hear. It drives you crazy. The drip in the toilet, the wind under the door, the noise, the keys, the racket, the people talking over each other, yelling all day, constantly can drive a person insane, right? Um, besides the fact that that small amount of space for a person with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia will literally bounce off the walls. So here I'm up for three, two days, four days in a row with nothing to do, right? If there's no reading material, no type of sensory input, your brain deteriorates. You start to lose your memory. You end up hallucinating. You feel more comfortable talking to yourself and you put yourself in this sort of psychosis where any little thing can trigger you to be emotionally hyped. So you're missing two packs of salt on your tray. You're like, I had a pack, you know, two packs yesterday. Why is there one pack today? You, you end up having this sort of, you know, everything that you need because you don't have much. They're giving you nothing. Um, and it becomes a, an irate position you take against yourself. You get 
frustrated at your own body scent because you only get to wash once a week. You slowly deteriorate emotionally. You know, uh, you don't even know what your face looks like. There's no reflective material. You don't have a mirror. So yeah, I'm looking like Dr. Jonathan Kimball, the fugitive, and hair coming back this way, right? Because stressed and lost all of this hair in the front. And, um, but it puts you in a dangerous circumstances when normal human reactions to confinement can cost you more tickets. So me getting lonely and talking to the guy next door can actually be punishable. Uh, him sharing a book because I don't have any magazines or anything to read becomes punishable. Right? Any type of exchange or communication with each other becomes punishable. Um, and it's a normal human reaction, right? We've known that because we have data from NASA for decades. But it's also the lack of ability to have any communication because you're in somewhere eight, ten miles away from population in literally sometimes a basement unit with no sunlight and no type of uh, social interaction. And it's, you sort of die inside. Can you talk about the projects that you are doing to, yeah, to create awareness and yeah. beyond? Yeah, so uh, some of the projects, uh, are, like I said, majority, we I helped to found a corporation called Incarcerated Nation Corp. And it's to get everybody to work together. So all of us who have a standing against solitary, number one, but also who have taken on the mantra of being human rights advocates, more so than any particular position, but just for the human rights of individuals. <clears throat> and um, we have a huge advisory network like Albert Woodfox and Robert King and Jazz Hayden and Laura Whitehorn, Kathy Boudin and Cheryl Wilkes. Uh, these are people who have been spent record amount of time in isolation, right? So we, we, we want to end that first. And one of the things that we've orchestrated, uh, like Dolores, who literally orchestrated the um, California hunger strikes years ago, right? With 80,000 people inside signing a petition and literally hunger striking from the honor blocks to the other units uh, was because they all understand that isolation is torture. Um, and then creating media articles, news events, getting people from different categories, representing different categories, whether it's the LGBTQ, some youth who grew up in the box, people who are aging in the box, um, and creating a system where we're building replica cells and then getting people to experience what we experience while you're with the person, right? So when we have these events, we always have speakers there and people directly impacted there as well. So that when people sort of, two reasons, one, they leave out of this feeling, wow, this is terrible, what can I do, right? Uh, two, um, it takes a little further understanding that uh, human beings are in here and those personal relations matter. So we've also done that. We do events like Solitary Gardens and also creating films. So we've done countless films on Solitary, uh, like the film Solitary, which is out now on HBO. Um, <clears throat> Herman's House, uh, we did a lot of consultation and media work as well, using our stories to create projects like the 6x9 with Google and The Guardian. We created a virtual reality story, but also a film. It was like a nine-minute short, but it's also an app, so people can experience it. Um, that's one of them. I've been in Tribeca for the last four years, every year. Robert De Niro's like, why is there a prison cell? Every time I walk in here, every year, right? Uh, because I'm always back with a different reason, but it's just because so many millions of people there there's a thousand different ways to start it. Um, if so much, if there is so much acceptance of the idea of human rights and you know people understand that there's the prison system is not working, right. what is the next step or what can we do or what is like 
impeding us to I think money. I'm just going to be honest. I believe capitalism is a root, I have to say, not of all evil, but the majority of them, right? So uh, we have a governor, number one, in New York. I can speak on this state, but also the other 50 states. Um, but on this state specifically, just give me an example of how other states have taken ownership. Um, we have a governor who says, well, you know, my dad built all these jails, and I really don't want to undo his legacy, right? Even if your legacy is spending a million taxpayer dollars per unit, and we have more units than anywhere else on the planet. We have more solitary cells per capita than anywhere else on the planet. We use solitary four times over the national average in New York. And besides the fact that we have 60-something counties that are all named after 60-something prisons, we also have these little other boxes in solitary jails that are around the state, which equals into 70 to 80 facilities, right? So when you talk about human isolation in New York, just to give an example, and this is why we're sort of the highest cost of living, we just beat San Francisco to be number one, I don't think we're proud because incarceration is the majority of that cost. Um, we pay $76 million for two supermaxes alone, just South Port of State, $76 million. And this is where the whole jail is locked down 23 hours a day, right? The most sort of cushion job you can have, and seeing a person is just sliding on the plate every three times a day doesn't really take much work, you know. But it's also the place where you find the most suicides, the most grief, the most anger, the most despair, and the most mental health abuse and neglect. But also the greatest amount of suicides and the greatest amount of trauma, but also instances where officers have extreme violence on people because when no one else is around, people can do what they want to do. So how does that affect into change? Well, that town that it's located in now has 5,000 more citizens, right? Now Attica has 10,000 more citizens. So it's actually in that town's financial and legislative interest to keep those people there. Now you have another 10,000 black and brown people, right? You're in a town that's all white. You can get minority-based loans. You get more schools. You get more community centers. Matter of fact, you get more prisoners. You can get more legal representation. So the redistricting lines in 2010 were drawn. We've seen a lot of different Republican and also political Democratic lines being redrawn. But legislative lines get redrawn to exhort resources from a certain amount of facilities that have a certain amount of count of people there. And these aren't active town citizens. They just count as your town population. So how does that affect the communities that these people return to? Well, that part of their town is not being counted for a consensus. So here we have 80% of people in New York State only come from seven communities, but they're being counted for the communities they're being held in because 80% of people in all of these facilities only come from three boroughs. And those three boroughs are lacking the finances and the resources because the body count is missing. Right? Oh, you don't need another public school. We don't have to hire more school teachers. You're actually down a few thousand people in the Bronx, right? You're actually down a few thousand people in this community. So you're not going to get street lights. You're not going to get basketball rims. You can't get another community center. What kids? All of them are in jail, but Attic is getting that money. Auburn is getting that money, right? So if you're a legislator, and here I come to your office with these goggles trying to tell you about solitary, it's in your interest to not listen to me, but it might be in your benefit to actually create new laws to bolster the prison because it's in your benefit. So it's a huge economic divide and it also means these people are deserving of this, right? So it's also about class, race, structure, a lot goes into the prison industrial complex. And what makes these people less deserving than other people that have rights? And everybody who goes in blue comes out red so they can't vote. So you're actually changing demographics of political spectrums with this system. And it becomes a meat grinder where people are coming out and we're gonna be living in a world like X-Men where mutants are sort of disenfranchised from society but have become an entire different population. So there's a lot hinging on you getting that sentence.
There's a lot hinging on a government or a state or individual governor for that state or that county actually doing benefit for one county by neglecting another community. I don't believe people commit crime. I believe people make actions, you know, and certain actions get criminalized and certain communities get criminalized. What do you think we have to change or overcome as a society? Raise the bar of human rights. Just say that there's some things we just won't do. Okay, he's 10, I'm not gonna lock him in a cell. If he's, the age of reasoning in America is nine. That is ridiculous and that is unethical. But I also have a nine-year-old, and if you watch the film Prison Kids that we did with Russell Simmons and Cory Booker, you'll see a youth who's on trial for second degree assault at nine with ADD and getting 600 milligrams of Adderall, right? So we look at mental health as a crime, uh, right? Guys around the cell like, why is he in solitary? Well, he was running around the jail, screaming, yelling, banging his head on the wall, wow. Uh, what was he locked up for? Well, he was running around the street, screaming, yelling, banging his head on the wall, right? So we're locking people up for having conditions. Knowing well that Kennedy created a promise to bring back to the mental health, and when Reagan looked into it again into the 80s, it was literally dismantled and tore apart, right? So by 1985, we put these people on the street. And then we made it illegal to be on the street. We created anti-vagrancy laws, anti-panhandling laws, anti-trespassing laws, basically quality of life laws. We basically made it illegal to be homeless. Oh, sorry. It's the 80s, so crack mysteriously hits the streets. Now you have a cheap synthetic drug for people to self-medicate on. Then we create a war on those very drugs. So we've created a system where the system has skyrocketed to a 400% increase in incarceration since the 80s. Why? Because of the laws we allowed in a democratic system we never improved upon, right? Why? Because the 13th Amendment never ended slavery, it just amended it, never ended it, right? And that meant that if you're incarcerated and you're in prison, you're a slave. And once we have those standards and we live in a world in a country that still validates killing people to say killing people is wrong, so we kill people to show them that killing people is wrong. When Belgium uh, literally transformed their justice system by legalizing drugs and created a therapeutic response, they also said we have to not have the death penalty because at the end of the day, we have to preserve life. Right? So I think that human rights and raising the level of what we do. When I was young, I grew up and learned about the Inquisition and how if you didn't go to church, they would chain your hands to this hitching block if you were young. right? Well, they see the same punishment today, the juveniles, when they hold their food slot, right? And we see these graphic images, but we're not thinking of it in the level. When people always ask me, when did we start putting women in solitary? I'm like, I love this little scene from Django. And I'm like, really? <laughs> when did we stop? Right? Because solitary confinement has been the psychological punishment that has kept the person, right? Why? You can beat a slave, you can whip a slave, you can rape his wife, you can take his kids, you can sell his children, you can cut up his foot. He'll hop away, you can cut up his leg, he'll crawl away, right? So the human spirit has always been defiant. So psychological torture and torment is a little bit more strong. So while you're working in 100 degrees weather, picking cotton, I'm going to put a metal box in the middle of the field and make y'all work around you. And Timothy is in that box, right? And that psychological punishment means that there is no value to your life. So when we look at the criminal justice system today, it doesn't value human life. There's actually policy that is hurting public health, right? Um, so human rights. Well, thank you thank so you. much. No, of yeah, course. This has Anytime. been amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you.